Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Genesis 37. We're doing a series through the book of Genesis, and as we continue in that series through this book, we come uh, this morning to Genesis 37, verse uh, 18, and my uh, goal this morning is to cover verses 18 through uh, 36, and the title of the message Today is how Joseph ends up in Egypt, how Joseph ends up in Egypt. That's essentially what uh, Genesis 37 is about. Uh, A few weeks ago, as Mike already mentioned this morning, uh, several of our men were at the Shepherds Conference in Panorama City with about 4,500 other uh, men at the conference They had a complimentary juice station where they were taking fruits and vegetables and running them through a a juicer that would separate the pulp from the juice. And then they would serve the juice to anyone for free who wanted a juice drink. Imagine how much pulp was created by those juicing machines running nonstop over the length of four days. The people who were running the juice bar had planned on throwing all of the pulp away, but Justin Chow and I asked them if we could have their pulp. And on the last day of the conference, by the way, they seemed all too happy to give it to us. And on the last day of the conference, they gave it to us about 250 pounds of pulp, and we were able to bring it all back to Riverside and use it as compost that will eventually enrich our spring and summer gardens. Uh, When I opened up uh, the bags of my pulp and poured it into the soil, it looked pretty disgusting, actually. Uh, Back in November of last year, some men gave me some bags of fish guts from the Mammoth Men's Fishing Trip, and I put those in my soil as well, And that also looked pretty unappetizing. Every year, I also put steer manure and chicken manure into the soil, and that never smells appetizing. But I put all of that stuff in my soil, knowing that God is a miracle worker who can take all of that mess and make a richer soil that will produce some tasty tomatoes and pumpkins in the spring and the summer. I share all this to say that Genesis 37 is full of pulp, fish guts, and manure. Yet God will do an amazing thing of using all of this as compost to further his amazing plan. And his plan in Genesis chapter 37 is to get Joseph down in the land of Egypt, which is the place from which Joseph will later serve as a rescuer to his family. In verse 28 of this chapter, we see the words, thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. In the final verse of the chapter, we're told that the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. Because most of us know how the story of Joseph ends, we know that what I just read are good developments that further God's plan to use Joseph as a rescuer of his family during an upcoming time of famine about 22 years from now. And amazingly, God will bring about this good outcome from the compost of a dysfunctional family situation and even terrible injustices committed. A magician, as you know, can pull a rabbit out of a hat. God can bring a beautiful tomato out of compost, and he can also bring about a beautiful deliverance from the compost of a deeply imperfect family situation like what we're going to see on display in this chapter. So don't ever, guys, underestimate what God can do with the compost of your life 
the compost of evils that are committed against you, or even the compost of an unfortunate situation in your family. We learned a few weeks ago how Joseph and his brother's relationship was becoming more and more toxic. At the age of 17, Joseph had tattled on his brothers and told his dad about something bad that his brothers had done. We also saw how Jacob loved Joseph more than all of his brothers, and he even made Joseph a multicolored tunic that represented his greater love for Joseph and also represented Joseph's preeminence over his brothers. To make matters worse, Joseph has a dream and finds it necessary to share his dream with his brothers, a dream about his brother's sheaves bowing down to his sheaf. This caused Joseph's brothers to hate Joseph even more than they did before. Then Joseph has another dream and shares this second dream with his brothers. In this dream, the sun and the moon and the stars are bowing down to Joseph himself, representing the fact that all of Joseph's family, including his brothers, will bow down before him one day. The last we saw three weeks ago, Joseph's brothers were up in Shechem tending their father's sheep. Jacob becomes concerned about their well-being, so he sends Joseph to go check on them. Joseph does not find his brothers in Shechem, but someone tells him that they are up in Dothan, another 14 miles further north. So Joseph goes to Dothan, and when he comes into view of his brothers wearing his very colored tunic, his brothers begin to plot evil against him. And this is where we left off last time and where we will pick up today. Essentially, what we're going to observe through the second half of this chapter is seven stages in the story of how Joseph ends up in Egypt where God will use him to bring rescue to his family. Stage number one is Joseph's brother's plot to kill Joseph. Observe what happens beginning in verse 18. When they, Joseph's brothers, saw him from a distance and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Now then come and let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits and we will say a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. What we have here is premeditated murder, along with the plan to cover up their crime once it is committed. We covered these verses three weeks ago. All I want to point out is this. From a practical and human standpoint, if the brothers succeed in killing Joseph as they are planning here, then Joseph will never end up going down to Egypt and becoming a powerful man in Egypt. And these brothers will not have Joseph to rescue them when they travel to Egypt during a future time of famine about 22 years from now. So if Joseph is to survive and end up down in Egypt where God wants him to be, then God is going to need to turn the intentions of Joseph's brothers in a different direction, which is exactly what he does. And this leads us to the second stage in the story of how Joseph ends up in Egypt, where God will use him to bring rescue to his family. Number two, Reuben convinces his brothers to throw Joseph alive into a pit. Reuben is the oldest of Jacob's sons, and observe what he does in verse 21. The text says, But Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, Let us not take his life. From the language here, it's clear that the plot that was just described in the preceding verses was something that Reuben did not participate in at all. Verse 21 tells us that Reuben heard this. And after hearing what his brothers were intending to do, he inserts himself into the situation 
and he takes the lead, stating categorically that this is something that he himself will not be doing, nor will he let his brothers kill Joseph as they're planning. He's saying the idea is, no, we will not be taking his life. The narrator tells us that in acting this way, Reuben rescued Joseph out of their hands. Things didn't end up fully going the way that Reuben wanted them to go, but his leadership here in this moment did prove decisive in saving Joseph's life. Were it not for what Reuben says here, Joseph would have been killed instantly by his brothers, which is why Moses gives Reuben credit here for rescuing Joseph out of the hands of his brothers. Reuben continues in verse 22. Look what it says. Reuben further said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit that is in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. Reuben is commanding his brothers to shed no blood, which means don't kill Joseph. Instead, he points to a nearby pit and tells them to throw Joseph into the pit and to leave him to die there. Then the narrator tells us why Reuben gave this counsel to throw Joseph into the pit. He tells us that Reuben says what he says here so that he, Reuben, might rescue Joseph out of their hands to restore him to his father. Reuben genuinely does not want Joseph to be killed. And he figures that if he can just convince his brothers to throw Joseph into a pit, then he, Reuben, can circle back at a later point and rescue Joseph from the pit and restore him to his father. That's the plan in Reuben's mind. And there's a lot to love about what Reuben does here as the oldest brother looking out for a younger sibling. He says to his brothers, let us not take his life, shed no blood, do not lay hands on him. If you jump ahead to Genesis 42:22, we learn that he also said, do not sin against the boy. We can rightly criticize Reuben for not calling his brothers here to some higher action of love for their brother, but at least his intentions are good. And he truly wants to rescue Joseph and get him back to his father. And this happens to be Reuben's plan to accomplish that. Now, keep in mind that Joseph has not even yet reached his brother's. He's still walking towards them, yet he reaches them in verse 23. And it's here we see that Reuben's counsel is shown to be effective, at least to some degree. Observe what happens in verse 23. It says, so it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him. The word translated stripped is the word used to speak of skinning an animal. Joseph's brothers are like a pack of wild dogs here, stripping off of Joseph this colorful symbol of their father's special love for Joseph and of his preeminent status in Jacob's eyes. They just yank and strip this garment off of Joseph. Verse 24 says, and they took him and threw him into the pit. Sadly, they don't just lower Joseph gently into the pit. They threw him into the pit. The word dumped would be a fitting translation of this word. We're then told the following in verse uh, 24. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. This tells us that this was a man-made cistern 
that they had thrown Joseph into, a cistern normally was used to collect rainfall and hold water, but we're told here that there was no water in this cistern. Cisterns like this would have ranged anywhere from six feet deep to 20 feet deep. And this one was obviously deep enough for Joseph to be unable to get out of without any help. After Joseph's brothers throw Joseph into the pit, observe what they do in verse 25. The text says, then they sat down to eat a meal. The callousness here is stunning. We're told nothing about what Joseph is feeling or doing here in this moment, but we get some indication later in the book of Genesis. In Genesis 42, Verse 21, Joseph's brothers look back on this day, on this moment, and they say, we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. So I would imagine that while they are eating this meal, they can hear Joseph's cries to his brothers for help, and they are ignoring his cries as they chew on their food. On top of this, the situation as it stands right now bristles with intrigue and unresolved tension. In the mind of Joseph's brothers, they will be leaving Joseph to die of starvation and thirst and exposure to the elements in this pit. In Reuben's mind, He's at least glad that Joseph is in the pit because it means that he can circle back and rescue Joseph at a later point and get him back to his father. However, Reuben's brothers almost certainly suspect that this is what Reuben is up to, which leaves them still pondering their original idea of just finishing Joseph off and killing him with their own hands. And later verses will make that clear. As much as we may appreciate Reuben's strategy, the truth is that if Reuben gets his way, then Joseph will end up back in the arms of his father and not end up in Egypt where God wants him to be. So something needs to happen here that both preserves Joseph alive and turns things in a direction to where Joseph ends up down in Egypt, according to God's plan. This leads us to the next stage in the story of how Joseph ends up in Egypt, where God will eventually use him to bring rescue to his family in a future day. Number three, Judah convinces his brothers to sell Joseph to a caravan of Ishmaelites. In the providence of God, observe what happens in verse 25. The brothers are eating together, verse 25, and as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh on their way to bring them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? In Judah's mind, by throwing Joseph into a pit and leaving him there, they are essentially leaving him to die. In other words, they're killing him with a slow death. We learn in a few verses that follow that Reuben had left his brothers at this point. So it's also very possible that the brothers are now starting to lean back in the direction of just killing Joseph with their own hands like they had originally planned rather than just leaving him to die in the pit and risk him being found and rescued by someone in the following days. Either way, Judah is saying, what profit is it for us to kill our brother and to cover up his blood or to hide our crime? He continues in verse 27 and notice his language. He says, come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. For he is our brother, our own flesh. 
The fact that Judah says, let us not lay our hands on him is a solid indication that Joseph's brothers were gravitating back to the idea of just killing Joseph like they had originally planned to do now that Reuben is not around to prevent them from doing so. This means that at this point, Joseph's fate could be one of three things. Number one, he could be left in the pit to die a slow death. Number two, the brothers could pull him out of the pit and kill him like they had originally planned and then throw him back into the pit. Or number three, the brothers could sell him to the Ishmaelite traders who are traveling by. And for his part, Judah is urging his brothers to sell him. Judah's argument is interesting. He appeals to his brothers and says, for he is our brother, our own flesh. In other words, he's saying, rather than killing Joseph, let's sell him as a slave to these Ishmaelites. For after all, he is our own brother, our own flesh. What a sweet brother Judah is. <laughs> Who wouldn't want an older brother like Judah? To his credit, he's recommending that they not kill Joseph, but even still selling someone into slavery is not a way to treat a brother either. Take a lesson from that, kids. <laughs> Essentially, Judah is saying, compared to just killing Joseph, selling him to these traders is the more brotherly and the more profitable thing for us to do. And it turns out that Judah's recommendation carries the day. Look at verse 27 and how it ends. And his brothers listened to him. Then some Midianite traders passed by. So they, Joseph's brothers, pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. If you're reading carefully, you'll notice that these traders are now called Midianite traders. And later in the verse, just as earlier, they're called Ishmaelites. It's likely that they were Ishmaelite traders by virtue of their descent from Ishmael. And at the same time, they were Midianites in terms of where they are coming from and where their base of operations is. Remember that Midian was a son of Abraham through Keturah, Abraham's wife after Sarah, and Ishmael was Abraham's son through Hagar. And it's very possible that their descendants intermarried, making both titles appropriate for this particular traveling band of traders. Regardless, we're told in verse 28 what Joseph's brothers did once their transaction with these traders was completed. Literally, the clauses read, look at this. They pulled and lifted Joseph and sold Joseph and took Joseph. Joseph's name is mentioned three times in the Hebrew text as the object of these verbs. And as one writer says, the bell tolls solemnly for Joseph here. The exceptional threefold repetition of his name marks an extremely important and providential event in the family of Jacob and the history of the embryonic nation. If this were a movie, we would see these actions taking place in slow motion, accompanied by the slow, epic-sounding pounding of drums. This is truly an epic moment as Joseph's fate and the fate of the world turns on the hinges of these three actions here. It's in the next verse that we realize that Reuben had left his brothers and was not with them. So he was not around to hear Judah giving his counsel, nor was he around to know what his brothers decided. He wasn't around to know that his brothers had lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to these traitors. And not knowing any of these things, 
Reuben later circles back to the pit and is dismayed by what he sees. This leads us to the next stage in the story of how Joseph ends up in Egypt where God will use him eventually to bring rescue to his family. Number four, Reuben is devastated to find Joseph gone from the pit. Observe what happens in verse 29. Now Reuben returned to the pit and behold, Joseph was not in the pit. So he, Reuben, tore his garments. Reuben is devastated. He evidently had no clue about what his brothers had done. He thought his plan had been working to perfection and that he would be able to pull Joseph out of the pit and get him back to his father in no time. But here he is staring into this pit and Joseph is not in the pit, which means that Joseph has either been carted off by someone and stolen or his brothers have removed him from the pit and killed him in Reuben's absence or disposed of him in some way Reuben would not know. Reuben is beside himself with grief and he is not even interested in hiding his sorrow. He tears his garments in a very open show of his dismay and he doesn't just do that. Look at verse 30. The text says he returned to his brothers and said, the boy is not there. As for me, where am I to go? At the very least, Reuben is saying, where do I even begin to look to find Joseph? And how do I ever leave this place without having found him? Some writers suggest that Reuben is also saying, how can I possibly go home and face dad? Whatever Reuben's meaning is here, he is bearing his heart and letting his brothers know that his agenda all along was to rescue Joseph. And he doesn't mind them knowing now. But it's likely that Reuben's brothers suspected it anyway. They offer no response to Reuben. Commentators say that their silence would have told Reuben that they had disposed of Joseph on their own. Well, the narrative continues by telling us how these brothers intend to spin the story of what has happened to Joseph. And this leads us to the fifth stage in the story of how Joseph ends up in Egypt where God will use him to bring rescue to his family. Number five, Joseph's brothers stain or you can use the word soak. They stain his tunic in blood to convince Jacob that he is dead. Observe what they do in verse 31. So they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in the blood. And they sent the very colored tunic and brought it to their father and said, we found this. Please examine it to see whether it is your son's tunic or not. Boy, these guys are good. They act here like they just found the tunic. They act as if they don't even know for sure that it's Joseph's. And by presenting the tunic to Jacob in this way, the brothers don't even have to verbalize a lie. They just present the tunic to Jacob and leave it to Jacob to conclude whatever he wants to infer from it. Spinning the deception in this way is not only designed to cover up their sin and their crime, but it's also such a spiteful and vengeful thing for these brothers to do to their dad. They've exacted their revenge on Joseph, but they're not done exacting revenge. They are here intentionally framing things in a way that would prove to be the greatest shock to Jacob's system. As one writer says, by presenting Joseph's tunic to their father in this way, Joseph's brothers are taking revenge on their father for having preferred Joseph. 
and they expect to find a certain satisfaction in witnessing Jacob's sorrow. We're reminded here, guys, that the sin of jealousy is not some innocent, little, respectable sin. It was the sin of jealousy that caused King Saul to try to kill David on a couple occasions. It was jealousy that caused the Jewish leaders to hand Jesus over to Pilate to be crucified. We may not always act out our jealousy to the extent that Joseph's brothers do here, but this passage shows us that the sin of jealousy contains within itself a whole universe of evil. And if you allow jealousy to take root in your heart and go unchecked in your heart, you may one day be stunned to discover the evils that you have committed. Don't even give jealousy a foothold in your heart. It is an insidious, awful evil. You'll notice that even now, Joseph's brothers can't even bring themselves to refer to Joseph as their brother. Their words to their father are, please examine it to see whether it is your son's tunic or not. Observe what happens in verse 33 when the tunic reaches Jacob. The text says, then he, Jacob, examined it and said, it is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him and Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Jacob comes to three conclusions. The tunic is Joseph's. A wild beast has devoured Joseph and Joseph has been torn to pieces. What an absolute shudder of horror must have come over Jacob at the realization of this fate that had befallen his favorite son. Imagine that as a parent coming to realize this. If there was one son that Jacob did not want to die out of his 12 sons, it was Joseph. You remember what Jacob did back in Genesis 33 when Esau was coming towards him with like 400 of his men and Jacob was not sure what Esau's intentions were. We're told that Jacob lined up his wives and his children and intentionally put Rachel and Joseph in the very back of the line so that they would have the best chance of escape if they needed to escape. Parents, imagine lining up your kids in this way when your family is faced with some kind of danger. Kids, imagine your parents doing this. Imagine, for example, kids, that some stranger rings your doorbell at your home and your parents immediately take their favorite child to the safest room in the house and lock the door and then tell you to go answer the door <laughs> to make sure that things are safe and to see if the stranger is dangerous or not. That's literally what Jacob is doing in Genesis 33. Some of you kids may be saying, that's exactly what my parents do, actually. <laughs> no. But that's what Jacob is doing in Genesis 33, keeping Joseph safe, making it clear that Joseph is, of all of his sons, the one that he would most want to protect and keep from dying. Yet here in our passage today, Jacob is now concluding that this son of all sons whom he most wanted to protect has been ravaged and slain in the most gruesome and awful of ways. You know, God is always doing a million things in all that he allows. And one of the things I think he's doing here is he's removing an idol from Jacob's life. And God is removing that idol here. And one day, God will give Joseph back to Jacob when the time is right to do so.
At the present, though, Jacob's sorrow knows no bounds. This leads us to the sixth stage in the story of how Joseph ends up in Egypt where God wants him to be in order to bring rescue to his family. Number six, Jacob is inconsolable over Joseph's death. Observe what Jacob does in verse 34. So Jacob tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. As the commentator Leopold says, the sackcloth that Jacob puts upon his loins was a very coarse garment, if it deserves to even be called a garment, being in the nature of old gunny sacks. Think of burlap material for an equivalent of this. Such a garment is uncomfortable to wear. It chafes against the skin and it shows Jacob's absolute refusal to be comfortable during this time of mourning over the death of his son. And back in this day, a parent would normally take a full week to engage in ritual mourning for their child, but we're told here that Jacob mourned for many days. Observe what his family members do during this time period in verse 35. The text says, then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. It's hard to imagine Jacob's sons trying to comfort him when they know what happened to Joseph, but they made some kind of attempt to comfort their dad and to get him past the death of Joseph, especially as they saw that he was mourning well past the normal mourning period. The text tells us that all of Jacob's daughters tried to comfort him also, and these daughters would have been Dinah, along with all the wives of Jacob's sons who would have been his daughters-in-law. Whatever comfort that Jacob's sons are trying to give and speak to Jacob during this season of mourning, we know that their comforting words never included a confession of their sin. And we know that their comforting words never included telling Jacob that Joseph was actually still alive and maybe retrievable. Imagine the cruelty of that. Your father is grieving over what he thinks is the death of your brother, and you know that your brother is actually still alive, yet you refuse to tell your grieving father that news. There's at least one big reason why Joseph's brothers do not confess the truth to their father. And that is, had they told Jacob that Joseph was with a band of traders traveling down to Egypt, they knew that Jacob would have sent out a rescue team and used his vast wealth to pay any amount of money to rescue Joseph. And the crime of these brothers against Joseph would have become known to Jacob. And Joseph would have become even more of dad's favorite then. And Joseph's brothers here, they're trapped into an awful silence about their sin. And confessing the truth of their sin to their father is absolutely unthinkable to them at this point. Whatever comfort Jacob's sons and daughters and daughters-in-law try to speak to Jacob was to no avail. Look at how verse 35 ends. And he, Jacob, said, Surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. Literally, this reads, Jacob is saying, Surely I will descend to my son mourning to Sheol. Understanding the text in this way, we see that Jacob is looking forward to a reunion with Joseph in Sheol, which is the grave and 
even the world of departed spirits. Jacob here is saying that he will spend the rest of his life in ritual mourning. And he's saying here that he will never let himself be comforted by anything or anyone until he's with his son again in the afterlife. So what is clear to Joseph's brothers at this point is this. They might have been able to get rid of Joseph, but they can't get rid of Jacob's greater love for Joseph. Jacob will not just be mourning over Joseph for a week or two. He will be officially in mourning for the rest of his life. Joseph's brothers once had to stare at Joseph's very colored tunic every day and be reminded of their father's greater love for Joseph. Now these brothers have to stare at their father's sackcloth clothing and is weeping and be reminded of how much Jacob still loves Joseph over them. They will still have to live under Joseph's shadow and watch their father refusing to move on with his life And there's nothing that any of these brothers can say or do to bring Jacob's mourning over Joseph to an end. How this must have tormented their conscience. In Jacob's mind, the story of Joseph is at an end. And Jacob's life might as well be ended too. The story of Joseph and Jacob's mind is at an end, finished in a horrible way. But we know better. We know that the story is not over. Jacob grieves here because of what he thinks that he knows about the situation. But he grieves because of what he does not know. What he does not know is that God is on the throne and that God is working all things together for Good, and that Joseph is still very much alive, having been sold to a traveling band of traders who were on their way to Egypt. And this leads us to the final stage in the story of how Joseph ends up in Egypt, where God will use him to bring rescue to his family. Number seven, Joseph is sold to Potiphar in Egypt. We were told in verse 28 that Joseph was brought into Egypt, but once he was brought to Egypt, observe what happens, verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. This is actually a striking development to someone who may be reading this story for the first time and they don't know the outcome. Because it actually puts Joseph in the service of one of the Pharaoh's chief officers. The man who is essentially the head of Pharaoh's secret service team. Which puts Joseph very close to the halls of power in the land of Egypt. And so this chapter ends with this scene, a scene of Joseph very much alive and brought into the service of a high official of the Pharaoh in the land of Egypt. All the while, Jacob is weeping, thinking that Joseph is dead. Little does Jacob know that his son is exactly where God wants him, in a place where he will eventually rise to power and bring rescue to his family in 22 years. There's so much for us to process in this chapter, and let's process just a few of these things. One of the things for us to ponder as we draw things to a close this morning is that God is an amazing God who is not hindered by the family dysfunctions and even the evils that people commit against us but a God who amazingly causes even those things, not just the good things, but even the evils committed and the dysfunctions to produce an outcome that is good for those who are called according to God's purposes. 
Think about all the negatives involved in Joseph's family life at this point. Imagine this being your story. Joseph grew up in a polygamous home where his father was married to four women. He had an overly protective father who favored him over his brothers, which ruined any chance of Joseph ever having a good relationship with his brothers. He grew up in a home with brothers who hated him so much that they could not even ever speak a nice word to him. Joseph experienced the death of his own mother when he was around the age of 10. And then on one awful day, Joseph is stripped and thrown into a pit by his brothers and sold by his brothers to a traveling band of traders, essentially selling him into slavery. That's a whole lot of dysfunction and evil. That's great injustice that's been committed against Joseph. And some of you have had injustices committed against you. Yet God uses all of that mess to put Joseph exactly in the place where God is going to want to use him on the road ahead. God wants Joseph in Egypt, where in his plan, God will work things together for Joseph's good and for the good of his family and will further God's ultimate plan to bring salvation to the world, actually. You might say, well, isn't it, isn't it neat that God did that for Joseph? Isn't it neat that God worked everything for good in Joseph's case? Actually, what happens to Joseph here and the truth behind it is just as true for you if you are a believer in Jesus. And God gives you a promise to back it up. In Romans eight twenty eight, the Apostle Paul says, we know. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Do you believe that? I would encourage you actually this week or even today, read through, just underline the key words in this verse and then just keep reading this verse out loud and put emphasis on a different one of these key words. We know We know that God, and so forth, through the length of the verse. And ask yourself, do you really believe this? Paul knows this reality to be true, and he wants you to know it together with him. That's why he says, we know, right? If you are a Christian, God will never, ever allow anything to happen to you that he does not fully intend to work together for your good and for his glory ever. Evils that are committed against you, sufferings that you have had to endure, disappointments that have come your way, God will take all of such things and work them together for good. So wherever you find yourself in your life right now, maybe even as a result of disappointments or injustices, evils committed against you, Wherever you find yourself right now, just serve God from that spot. Trust in that location. Trust that God has you there for a reason and that it's a part of his plan and that he's up to something truly grand. What your enemies may mean for evil, one day you will see that God only allowed them to do what they have done against you because God plan to use that for something good. And the truth is, you simply have to believe that if you're a Christian. If you don't, then that means that you must believe that evil is more powerful than good and that evil has the final word. Don't believe that lie and don't give evil too much credit. It doesn't deserve that much credit. The absolute worst evils ever committed in the history of the world were when Judas sold Jesus to his enemies for 30 pieces of silver. And then the Jews and the Romans crucified Jesus on the cross. 
They falsely accused him. They beat him. They spat on him. They lashed him. They nailed him to a cross and killed him, mocking him as he died. You can't get more evil than that. But did those evils have the last word? No. From the cross, Christ prayed, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. And God, as we know, raised Jesus from the dead. And through Christ's death, salvation has come to people around the world, including most of us in this room. At the cross, God took the compost of human sin and produced the fruit of salvation. And he did that with the evils committed on the worst day in human history. And if God could do that on the worst day in human history, the worst evils ever committed, then you know that God is perfectly capable of overcoming any of the evils that have been done against you. God is perfectly capable of overcoming unfortunate circumstances in your life and working them together for your good and his glory. And I can say that because God is sovereign He's in control and he is good. And evil is no match for God. As R. Kent Hughes, the commentator says, because we see this is true in Joseph's life. He says, Joseph's life teaches us that life is full of inequities and unfairness and tragedies. But it also teaches us that we have a great God who works amidst the rich compost of human life to do his will. Isn't God amazing? Speaking of God's sovereignty, though, um, we're reminded in this passage that God is sovereign and we are not. God did not ask Joseph for his permission to get thrown into a pit and sold to traitors and get taken as a slave down to Egypt He didn't ask Jacob's permission to rip his son from his life and have him sent away to Egypt. Why? Because God is God and he needs no such permissions from you and from me. What happens in Genesis 37 is not what Joseph would have ever wanted, nor what Jacob would have ever wanted, but it is God's sovereign plan And God has every right to rearrange Joseph's life and Jacob's life in any ways that he sees fit for their good and for his glory and for the furthering of his great redemptive plan. And he has the same rights to your life as well. But you can know that whatever he allows, whatever he ordains, he is good and he's always up to something amazing. Also, if you value your salvation through Jesus Christ, then you should cherish a story like what we find here in Genesis 37. The scarlet thread of the story of our redemption runs all the way through the Old Testament. And in the arc of the Old Testament narrative, we see some crazy points where destiny sits on a razor's edge and our spiritual fate literally hangs in the balance from a human standpoint. If one split second decision gets made by Joseph's brothers differently in this chapter, then the outcome would have been radically different in a way that would have impacted us even today. But God is sovereign and he was intent on providing for the world and for you a savior in the person of Jesus Christ. So God turns the decisions that are made in this chapter in such a direction so as to ensure that Joseph will end up down in Egypt and rise to power in Egypt and become a rescuer to his whole family in Egypt so that the lineage of the Messiah can survive and the Messiah can eventually be born so that this Messiah can live a perfect life and then die on the cross for your sins 
and for mine so that salvation can come to us and to all the world so that broken families like Jacob's could have forgiveness of sins and be saved and so that broken people like you and me can have a savior if we want one. If you're here today and you have never believed in Jesus, I want you to know that God does what he does in Genesis 37 as a part of a long chain of events designed to lead actually to this very moment in which I am speaking about Jesus Christ to you today. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says you will be saved. Call upon his name and let him forgive you of all of your sins and save you and let God in saving you bring you into his family and bring you into the camp of those who can honestly say, we know, we know that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Let's pray together. Lord, on some levels, as we come to the end of Genesis 37, it seems that evil has won. That evil has prevailed. But as we continue to read through this amazing book, we will see that there will come a day of reckoning when what is now held in secret will be brought to light. And that good will prevail. And so will grace. Grace for Joseph, grace for Jacob, and amazingly grace for Joseph's brothers. You are sovereign, Lord. And you are not just sovereign when things are going well and everyone is treating us right. You are sovereign even when we are wronged. You are sovereign even when injustices are committed against us. You are sovereign even when it seems in the moment like evil has prevailed and the wicked have gotten by with their sin. You are still on the throne and you are working behind the scenes and we could take it to the bank that you will take all of that mess and work things together for good for those of us who love you, for those of us that are called according to your purpose. We live in a day-to-day, -day, Lord, in our culture, in our society, where in our nation and even our world today, where evil seems to reign. The wicked have their way. Injustice prevails. But may what we've been reminded of in this chapter stabilize us and give us a remarkable peace that you are on the throne and a day of reckoning is coming and that you not only take the good and use that, but you even take the injustices, the evils, and the mess and you will cause even those things to work together for the outcome you desire. And one day Christ will return from heaven and establish his reign upon the earth and every wrong will be righted and righteousness will prevail and we'll look back on human history and say, wow, just wow. We're blessed to have such a God as you 
And if there's anyone here this morning, Lord, that has never bowed to you and your sweet sovereignty and received the salvation that you sent your son to provide for them, touch their hearts and bring them to life in their spirit that they would see the beauty of Jesus Christ and the beauty of your ways and, and say, I'm with God. I'm with Jesus, and he is the one and only Savior for me. And help them to cry out to you, Lord, and receive this grace. Thank you for this opportunity to give of our offerings to you, Lord. Receive the money that we give in this offering, every penny of it, Lord, and do much with it for the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ in whose name we pray and all God's people said.